The year was about 1990, I believe, and my uh, father was turning 37. He was working late one Thursday evening, and uh, he was the last one there. He was turning off all the lights and um, locking all the doors. He was going out the back uh, of the office space that we were in, and in the back where he parked, there's kind of a dark alley, and there was a uh, a good size dumpster just a <clears throat> maybe a couple of yards away from the back door, <clears throat> such that if if somebody wanted to, they could hide behind it and lie and wait for the person coming out the back door and jump out and grab them. And that's exactly what happened to my dad that evening. Several men actually were hiding behind the dumpster, jumped out from behind the dumpster, threw a blanket over his head, tackled him, and threw him into a van, slammed the door, and peeled out. Thankfully, they were his friends from church. Um, and it was a surprise for his birthday party. But he didn't know that. And so I asked him later, Dad, were you scared? He goes, well, they did a pretty bad job at disguising their voices. Quick, get them. And he knew who it was. Um, but not right away. And it's alarming, right? It's a su- surprising, unsettling thing. That's what surprises do. They unsettle us because it's not what we were expecting. Well, that might not be your uh, cup of tea, your fun idea of a surprise, getting kidnapped in the dark of night. But everybody, everybody loves surprises, except for when they don't. I mean, you put on a pair of pants you haven't worn in a year and they still fit. That's good. And you put your hand in your pocket and you pull out a $20 bill you didn't know was there, and it's a good day. But you get your next utility bill for next month, and it's $300 more than normal. That's not a fun surprise. Well, um, we have expectations that unsettle us when we get surprised, but we also have desires. And when they're not met, we don't just get unsettled, because you can be unsettled and, and exhilarated with thrill, or you can be unsettled and really struggle to grapple with what's going on. And that is indeed what often happens when something happens to us that not only we don't expect, but that we don't want. But did you know that God can surprise us this way too? And it makes sense that God is a surprising God because His thoughts and His ways are, are greater and higher than ours. And so He does things that we don't always expect. He has secret counsels that we know not of. He has purposes and plans that we cannot understand. We would say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. We cannot fathom Him. We can know Him, but we cannot comprehend Him, exhaust Him. God does amazing, astonishing, surprising things. And sometimes those surprises are not only not what we expect, they're not what we want. And at those moments, we need both our expectations and our desires corrected, shaped by who God is and how He acts in this world and how He relates with us. So then we go to Scripture. And yet sometimes we only find out that Scripture itself surprises us with what we see of God and how He works. So this morning, I want to lay before you from this text of Exodus 30, 11 through 16, five surprising truths about God and His ways. Now, it might be that you're not really surprised by these things, some of them or any of them, but I hope that you can at least see that they are surprising to many people. And hopefully we will be able to see them from that angle and that God would use them to correct or shape or even just strengthen the truth of our understanding of Him and our expectations about Him and our desires for Him. 
So we're going to jump right into the first of these surprising truths. The first thing that might surprise you is that God would send a plague on his people. Look at verse 12. The God would send a plague. It says, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. So what's happening is that they're going to, at some time very soon, gather together the people. Maybe just, it says in verse 14, those 20 years old and upward. Maybe the men for an army. And they're going to count them, number them all. And he says, and when that happens, I will bring a plague on you. And it will kill you. Now, this is surprising to us, I think, in part because we say, the only other time we've heard about plagues up to this point was plagues against Egypt, God's enemies. Israelites' enemy, hit the, those who are oppressing his people. And so now he says, I'm going to pour out a plague on my people. Well, why would he do that? Why would God do that? And there are two kind of supporting truths that if we were to truly grasp them, maybe this idea of God singing the plague wouldn't be so surprising. But these two other supporting truths themselves are kind of surprising. The first is that all people are deserving of his judgment. All people. Now, this is surprising to us sometimes because we too often think too highly of ourselves. We, we feel as if that life is, or at least should be, about us in large measure, right? And we're often ignorant of our own arrogance because we view the world, everything in it, as directly relating to us first. Like, the world is first person, and everything, what I see is how the world is, and it all relates to me, where I'm at the center where in reality everything directly relates to God. And He is at the center. And yet when we do see ourselves in relationship to the holy God, we want to downplay our unholiness. And so we, we call our sins mistakes. We have areas of improvement in where we can grow. Or we don't compare ourselves to the holy God, but to other unholy people and say, well... We parent better than they do. I would never struggle with what he struggles with. Do, can, can you believe that she said that? I wouldn't do that. And we too quickly dismiss, downplay, ignore, or forget our own sins. And we never, never truly grasp the depth of them and our sinfulness. And because of this, when God is so good to us in countless ways every day, we can foolishly make the mistake that God's kindness, His gracious goodness to us is just an earned reward for our own goodness. Listen, church. God's mercies for His people, without a doubt, will be new every morning. But don't, don't confuse your certainty of His mercies for your deservingness of His mercies. They will come but not because you deserve them. That's why they're called mercies. They're not just, it's not just goodness, it's gracious goodness. It's a kind of love and care that we do not deserve. But what do we deserve? Everyone deserves His judgment. Everyone is deserving of God's judgment. The occasion for this is the census. If you look again at verse 12, <clears throat> when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them. So it's when they're being numbered, the plague is going to come. 
there, so that there'll be no plague among them when you number them. That census is just counting the people. I don't, however, think that the census is the cause for the plague because God in that book of Numbers is going to tell them to take a census. So it's not that counting them themselves were bad. It was helpful, useful, practical. It may be that a census was often a, a temptation for their army, the, the, the people of Israel, to grow prideful of the strength of numbers. But I really just think this was the occasion. And the point is, is that they were always deserving of judgment. And this was just an occasion where they were all together to do something about it. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preaches from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, which says, Vengeance is mine, and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. Notice that. There is a time, a set time, when their foot shall slip. It will fall. They're standing, as it were, on a slippery slope, and nothing is needed except their weight for them to fall into judgment. And it's only God's mere pleasure that keeps them out of it. It goes on to say in Deuteronomy 32:35, For the day, that is the appointed day of their calamity, is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Edward says about this verse that we must see from this that there are always, that they are always exposed to sudden destruction. And God's judgment can come at any moment, and it's only His mere pleasure that keeps it from them. Listen, there is nothing. There is nothing in us or about us that stays God's hand from unleashing a devastating plague on us. Where we have 100, 200 people gathered in this room this morning, we have 100 to 200 sinners here that deserve His judgment and there is nothing in us or about us that stays God's hand from, from raining down fire from heaven or opening up the ground to swallow us whole. The reason why we are not consumed by God's judgment at this moment has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Him. It's because of His grace. It's because of His grace that we are not in judgment at this moment. It's either the grace of patience or the grace of atonement. We're going to talk more about the grace of atonement in a, in a moment. About whereas God's judgment is, and justice is poured out on another in your place so that judgment won't come on you, but there's also the, the grace of patience. And there are many here, I know, who are only not destroyed at this moment. That God is not consuming you and sending you to hell at this moment because of His grace of patience. That is, He's just delaying your judgment. But don't presume upon the kindness of God. It's meant to lead you to repentance. Have you ever thought that why am I still alive? It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with His grace. And maybe it's just the grace of His patience. And that patience is a reminder that this is another opportunity. Each new day is a merciful chance for you to repent. Do not take that for granted. Tomorrow is not promised. We all deserve God's judgment. And that is supporting the truth, the surprising truth that God would send a plague on His people. But there's another supporting truth. And maybe it's more surprising than the first. That God is wrathful. That God is a wrathful God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher in London from the 20th century, once said in a sermon that it can be said with certainty that there is no other doctrine which so generally is repugnant 
to the majority of men than this particular doctrine, the doctrine of God's wrath. This doctrine, he says, is most hated. People are disgusted with the idea that God is wrathful. And he goes on to say in that sermon, it's because they expect God, and more than that, they want God to be loving in such a way as they see it as loving. And they cannot conceive of God having both love and wrath in his same person. Leon Morris is a very capable theologian and scholar from the 20th century, and he has been very helpful to me in understanding God's word about God's wrath. So much of what I say here has been helped by him when I say that God's wrath is the necessary, constant, and strict response of God towards sin. It is the necessary response. It must be, as one theologian has said, there must be an eternal recoil against the unholy on a part of the all-holy God. God is holy, 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 such that He is of too pure of eyes to look at sin. He has to have an eternal recoil against everything that is unholy. It must be. God's wrath is the necessary and constant response towards sin. Psalm 11, 7 verse 11 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. It's a constant response to sin. God never says, well, today I'm just really more agitated about sin than I was previously. He's always indignant at sin. He hates it. He is constantly wrathful. It is a necessary, constant, and strict that is a stern and rigid, immovable response of His love and holiness towards sin. Wrath is an indispensable part of God's divine nature. It is essential to who He is. Nahum 1-2 says, The Lord is a, right, is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. Do you notice it said, This is who the Lord is. He is an avenging and wrathful God. Now it may sound strange to us, but far from being something that we should avoid or apologize for or be embarrassed about, the fact that God is wrathful is reason for us to celebrate and to find comfort and to worship. Listen with me, um, Psalm 96. You can turn there if you want. Psalm 96 verses 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. Why is all of creation shouting for joy and praising God? Because He comes and He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's with faithfulness. And you go on in chapter 97 and he talks about the, the fire of God's burning wrath against his adversaries all around. And the coastlands are glad. The peoples rejoice. There is reason to mourn and weep over judgment and wrath and hell. And yet there's also reason to rejoice and to praise God for it. Often, though, the reason why people have a hard time with this thought, and it's surprising that God even is wrathful, and the Bible talks about it so much, is because they don't understand what wrath is. So let me tell you what it's not. That God is wrathful is not that He is some childless, uh, a childish, immature person who has an emotional tantrum. That's not what this is. 
God's wrath is not an irrational passion bursting forth arbitrarily, randomly, and uncontrollable. That's not God's wrath. Rather, it is, as Leon Morris has said, God's wrath is his burning zeal for the right, coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. It is his burning zeal, his passionate commitment for everything that is good and holy and pure and righteous. And it's tied together with his perfect hatred. That is his complete and total and pure and holy hatred for everything that is evil. This is God's wrath. And when you grasp this, it might lead you to be surprised at the next surprising truth of this passage. And that is that God hasn't already destroyed them. I mean, if he really has a burning zeal for the right, coupled with a perfect, a holy hatred for all that is evil... Why hasn't he already destroyed them? Why would he warn them and, and give them a, a, a way to be spared? Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Why is he talking? Why isn't he just acting and consuming them? He warns them, verse 12, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, because there will be a plague. But there's a way out. If you give the ransom, there will, that there will be no plague among them when they're numbered, Give the payment price. Why would he warn them? And why would he give them a way out? While it may be surprising that God would send a plague on his people, it actually should be more surprising that he hasn't done so to us already. That's what should surprise us. While it may be surprising that God is a wrathful and avenging God, it should be even more surprising that he is a merciful God to sinners who deserve his judgment. As I said earlier, there is nothing in us or about us that stays God's hand from bringing judgment upon us at this very moment. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Him. That God is both wrathful and merciful. These are not just abstract heavenly realities up in the spiritual realm. These are active things that God does in this life and in this world. He is active in who he is. You can look with me at Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus chapter 34, Moses asked the Lord to show me your glory, God. And in verse 6 of Exodus 34, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who he is. So what does he do? He keeps steadfast love for thousands and he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet, he's not only merciful, but he's also wrathful because he will by no means clear the guilty. But what will he do? He will visit the iniquity. That is, he will execute judgment on the sin of the fathers, on the children, and to the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. That God is merciful means he doles out forgiveness. That God is wrathful means that he acts in avenging ways to pour out judgment on those who deserve it. Well, that seems confusing, doesn't it? How can God be both wrathful and merciful? How can, he, how, how, how can He say that He will forgive iniquity, but also by no means clear the guilty? Which is it? If He's to be active in both, then He needs to be able to pour out His wrath and yet provide forgiveness, and there must be a source of payment. And so He tells them that they could pay a ransom in chapter 30, verse 12. 
See, the payment is necessary. The debt is there and it must be paid. His justice has to be served in order for his wrath to be satisfied. And yet because he's merciful, he also wants to provide a payment that is outside of and different from their own lives. Instead of paying with their own lives, he says, you can pay another way. Which then leads to the third surprising truth of this passage. If it's surprising to us that God would be merciful, it should be even more surprising that he would accept a, such a meager payment for atonement. Look at verse 13. Exodus 30, 13. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this. Oh, well, well, what is it? If God is going to say, you can ransom your life from my judgment, my wrath is going to fall on you in a plague, but instead all you have to do is pay this. Well, what is it? Half a shekel. Just a half a shekel. Not even a whole shekel. It's a half of a shekel. According to the shekel of the sanctuary, that is, according to the measurement, the standard of measurement by the priest in the sanctuary, so it's a constant measurement, the shekel is 20 geras. Well, if you don't know what a gera is, welcome to the club. But you can find in your study Bible that it is about one-fiftieth of an ounce. So if 20 geras is a whole shekel, well, then 10 would be half a shekel. So 10 geras would be about one-fifth of an ounce. One-fifth of an ounce of silver is all it costs to redeem a person. In today's standards, that's about four or five dollars. That's pretty measly, isn't it? The reason why this should be surprising to us, I think, is number one, because the man's life, soul, is surely worth more than a half a shekel. The Hebrew word for ransom here is the word kafir. And it literally means the price of a life. The price of a human life is a half a shekel. The the word ransom means here that it's a suitable and just payment to the Lord to buy back a life from deserved death. That you can spare a life if you just pay this suitable price when they deserve judgment. You can rescue them them from it by just paying the, the, the fair price. What is it? a half a shekel. Surely, a man's life, a man's soul, the word nefesh here is is for life and soul. It's the totality of the human person must be worth more than a half a shekel. Jesus agrees in Mark 8, 37. He says, what can a man give in return for his soul? I mean, you can get all the money in all the world and it wouldn't be able to pay for the value of one human soul. So this is indeed surprising that God would say just a half a shekel. It's even more surprising, though, I think, that he says a half a shekel because of who he's paying. Look at chapter 30 again, verse 12. <clears throat> take the census, when you take the census, each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord. Verse 13, it says at the end, it's a half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary as an offering to the Lord. Verse 14, at the end it says, He shall give the Lord's offering. Verse 15, at the, it says at the end, When you give the Lord's offering. So why are they giving it to God? Because He's the one they owe. They've offended Him. They've defamed Him, disgraced Him, devalued His honor. Well, how much is God's honor worth? Half a shekel? Verse, the end of verse 15 says, that when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. The word atonement is the same word for propitiation. 
which just means that God's wrath must be satisfied by means of a payment. That is, if God's going to pour out His just wrath on the sinner, and instead He pours it out on another, something else instead, so they, that the wrath is absorbed, so He still gets to vindicate His honor. God is only wrathful because He's holy and full of infinite value, infinite glory. So the price must be equal to the price of God's honor. But here he says just a half a shekel. And indeed, why money? God doesn't need money. Why would he ask for money from people that he's already rescued? He said, hey, you have no money? When you leave Egypt, I'm going to make them give you just abundance of, of jewels and gold and silver. God can do whatever he wants. He owns the world and everything in it. Why is he asking them for money? Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9 tells us, don't trust in your wealth. It, it won't work. You cannot give God any amount of money and so ransom your soul from Him. Your soul is too costly. Life is too much. You cannot pay God enough to redeem your life from His just judgment. And so why money? Why a half a shekel? I think primarily in order to teach them the necessity of depending upon Him to graciously redeem them. You see, it would have been, I think, abundantly clear that the half a shekel was simply a token. It was just a symbol of what they owed God. Everyone clearly understood that human life was worth more than a half a shekel and that God indeed is infinitely more valuable than a half a shekel of silver. This was just a symbol of what they owed God and what did they owe Him? The same thing that we do. Absolutely everything. But I don't own everything. I don't have the ability to give God everything to give Him all the praise He's due. Especially when I've dishonored Him time and time and time again. So I'm in the negative. They would never be able to pay God everything. Neither will we, and that's the point. And so they, we, you... You must depend upon God to graciously redeem you by paying the ransom price. He says, just give me a symbol, give me a token, half a shekel, that you're depending upon me for it all. Which to me leads to the fourth <clears throat> and most surprising for me truth of this passage about God and how he relates with us. And it is this, that the focus of this text the focus of this passage of Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16, is primarily on sinners being spared. Let me tell you why that's so surprising to me. <clears throat> I struggled with this message and getting it put together because I've been a Christian a long time. I've, I've, I've read the Bible many times. I have, I've listened to countless number of sermons, read countless number of books, all telling me that, yes, what is true is that the ultimate focus of all the Bible is the glory of God. We sang of it this morning. That the ultimate focus of God is His own glory. The ultimate focus of the church and of every Christian is and should be to see and to savor and to show that God is glorious. That's why we exist. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That is the chief end of man. That's why we are here. So when I look at this text, I see that that 
is the overarching focus of the whole Bible, but that's not the primary focus of this text. I, I read here in verse 12 where it says, I, I'm going to send a plague on you. So give a ransom for your life so that there's no plague. And what I expect to find after that is, so that then you will praise me for it. But it doesn't say that. I read in verse 15, it says, <clears throat> you need to give a, 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 the Lord's offering so as, here's the purpose, to make atonement for your lives. And then I expect to find, so that then you can live lives for the glory of God. But that's not what it says. And at the end of verse, verse 16, it says, give this money so that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. Remember, I, I, now I'm thinking that, oh, so that we would remember the Lord and give Him praise and glory and honor and live for Him all our days. But that's not what it says. It says that God may remember them in His mercy. So as to make atonement for your lives, period. And I'm struggling because as a preacher, I know my job is to show you the grand realities and the ultimate focus of God's Word. The Gospel itself is salvation of sinners for the glory of God. That's just not the primary focus of this text. And so it makes me unsettled. I want to tell you to glorify God. But instead, I, I, I can't do that from this text. Not in that primary way. You see, no matter how true or how important a theological point is, I don't get to make that the focus of this passage over against what God has already made the focus. I'm a servant of the Word, not its master. So to me, as I was unsettled about this, I came to him and I said, how rich and beautiful that God says, I want you to see, just tell them, don't tell them to glorify me. Tell them my glory of my wrath and my power and my mercy. And they will glorify me. Just see it. Oh, that we would have eyes to see that God spares sinners by His mercy. We don't deserve it. He's the wrathful God. We are the unholy sinners. And He says, I will spare you. I will spare you and I will pay the price for you. The fifth surprising truth in this passage to me connects directly to this. The ultimate primary focus here of, of this text is on God saying, you can be spared my wrath that you deserve. And that this focus of sinners being spared God's wrath is ultimately centered on the atoning on the propitiating, on the wrath-absorbing work of Jesus on the cross. Now, that might not be all that surprising to many of you, but if you step, take a step back and, and think about it from the perspective of somebody coming to this fresh, you're telling me that hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus was even born, in a passage is talking about Furniture for a tabernacle. It's about Jesus? Yeah. Before this world was ever created, hundreds of trillions of millennia before this universe came into existence, Jesus was the focus of God's Word and the Gospel and of His atoning sacrificial plan to graciously redeem sinners. 
It's astonishing. We often fail to be amazed by it. But even just looking at this fact that why did he talk about atonement money in this passage? <clears throat> in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 30, he's talking about furniture in the tabernacle, the altar of incense in the holy place. In verses 17 through 21, right after this, he'd be talking about the bronze basin right outside the tabernacle in the temple court, in the tabernacle courtyard, right in front of the holy place. And here he intersperses, oh yeah, let me talk to you about atonement money. Throwing a plague on you in the midst of a census because you deserve judgment. I'm a wrathful God, but there is a way by mercy for you to get a half a shekel and I'll receive it by grace and you will be spared. It seems weird in the midst of this, but verse 16 does tell us that the money was to be used for the tabernacle. Verse 16, you shall take the um, atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting. Another phrase for the tabernacle. That one it, that is the, the, the atonement money, when it is provided for the tabernacle, that therefore the result will bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, and he will graciously remember them to, to spare them and not pour out his wrath and a plague on them. So it, you see, it wasn't that the money could actually atone for sin. It was never the point. It's a half a shekel. The, the atonement money could never atone for sin, but it provided the tabernacle wherein God would graciously meet with his people, and he would receive their sacrificial offerings on their behalf. And yet, as we've been saying in through the second half of the book of Exodus, from the book of Hebrews, that the blood of bulls and goats and rams and sheep, they could never atone for sin either. So, the atonement money was pointing to the tabernacle. The tabernacle to the sacrifices. The sacrifice is pointing to what? The ultimate sacrifice. The Lord Jesus Christ. Because none of these could atone for sin. Rather, they pointed to the sacrifice, the sacrifice, who alone could and did atone for sin and bring forgiveness and purchase salvation and satisfy God's wrath by taking it upon himself on a cross, by fulfilling, he could fulfill the demands of justice and reconcile sinners to God and secure the gracious reward of eternal life with God in the new creation for all of his people forever and ever. Jesus did that. Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the one by whom God graciously redeems sinners, sparing them the wrath of God. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. We are ransomed. And God provides the ransom price. And it's not silver or gold that perishes, as Peter told us. It's the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like an unblemished and spotless Lamb who comes to bear the wrath of God completely for us. Matthew twenty twenty eight says that Jesus, the Son of Man, he came not to serve to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know what's what's worth more than a man's life? And you know what equals the honor of God? Not a half a shekel. It's the infinitely holy and glorious life of King Jesus. He is our ransom price. So when we depend upon God completely, we must be trusting in His Son to be the ransom price, to bear the wrath of God in our place. You know, it says, Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. 
Many. Well, who's the many? If you would allow me, as we close with one last verse, to give you one more surprising truth from verse 15. It's a twofold truth. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. Which tells us on the one side <clears throat> that you are not too rich, that you don't need God to redeem you by His payment. And on the other side, you are not too poor that He will not receive you. Both kings and paupers, both the criminal and the judge, the old and the young, the rich and the poor, all need atonement, all need propitiation, all need a substitute to absorb God's wrath in their place. They all need God to graciously redeem them by giving them the payment, the ransom price as a substitute for them. So if you are here this morning and you either think that you're too high or too low, you think that you have too much in the way of friends or popularity or ease of life or skill or power or beauty or morality or religion or spirituality, whether you think it's too great or too low, whether you think yourself too holy or too sinful, what I call you, what God calls you to this morning is to come to Jesus. Come to Him. There is no way to buy yourself out of this. You don't have enough. All the shekels of silver in the world wouldn't get you an ounce closer. You need the priceless, spotless blood of Jesus Christ. So come to Jesus. And if you're not sure what that fully means, you want to know more, please come and find me afterwards. I would love to talk with you about it. Connect with another pastor or a Christian friend around you. Put it on the connection card. If you want somebody to talk with you about it, you can email us at prcpastors at pineyridgechurch.org. And this morning, if, if you have come to Jesus and you are coming to Him as your sole hope, as your payment, as your Redeemer, and you're completely depending upon Him, then in just a moment I want to invite you to come to His table. Come to the Lord's Supper, the communion meal. You can, you can do it by exiting to the left of your row and coming up front. There's gluten-free all the way up here to the right, or to the, my right, your left. And you can come and you can grab the communion elements, this wafer of bread that represents the body of Jesus, and this juice that represents the blood of Jesus, by which He became your ransom price. By which He said, I will interpose my blood for those who deserve judgment. And I will take God's wrath on myself that they can be forgiven and freed and blessed forevermore. And if that's you and you've had your faith affirmed in Jesus by other Christians, by being baptized in a local church, then you can come, exit to your left in just a moment and grab your communion elements, go back and return to the right and take it with your friends, your family, or by yourself. But I want you to do this. When you take communion, pause for a moment. Pause for a moment. 